Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We have a lot of Bible to get through today, but that's a good thing. Um, you have your Bibles now, so we're ready. If you don't remember, uh, we are in a Luke series. We've kind of been, I don't know when we started. It's probably been like two years. Um, but we're in Luke chapter nine, so we're moving through it. So you can open there with me. You guys can stand. Um, and I'm gonna give you some context for what we're about to read because you guys probably don't remember the last time we taught on this. Um, we're gonna be in Luke chapter nine, verse 43. So what has just uh, happened is Jesus just healed a demon-possessed boy whom the disciples could not heal. So that's kind of the context of where we're at. Um, So that is what's going on, and we're going to be in uh, verse 43, if I can find it. There we go. Here we go. Uh, While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest." Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Then the disciples, James and John, saw this and asked the Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went into another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes and dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so setting the context here, kind of setting the stage, I think this passage is kind of like a nice little like look into the disciples' mindset about things um, and Jesus kind of gently correcting. Um, but what's interesting is just a couple, like a little bit before in this chapter, a lot of miraculous things have already happened. Like Jesus fed the 5,000, um, the transfiguration occurred. He just healed this demon-possessed boy. And not only this, the disciples had already been sent out, the 12, so they themselves have like seen these things happening, right? They've cast out demons, they've healed people. So they're kind of like 
they're feeling good about themselves, to be honest. Like, they were so confident at this point. They're like, should we just call down fire and just, like, wipe out that village? Like, they're not, like, they're, they're starting to, like, their eyes are kind of being opened, I think, to, like, the reality of the kingdom. Like, we're kind of part of the greatest moment in human history. And, like, I feel pretty good about that. Like, and I think we, we would agree, right? Like, they are great men. Like, they have done amazing things. Um, they were destined for greatness. Like, they were called by Jesus to do this incredible work. Um, so I think to an extent, like, they were great in that way. However, in this passage, Jesus has to rebuke them three different times. And I think what he's rebuking each time is their approach to greatness. It's not that they wanted to be great. Jesus never says, don't try to be great, ever. You're not gonna hear him say that. But he will correct how we try to be great. And I think that's what this passage is doing. I think Jesus is contracting or contrasting worldly greatness and kingdom greatness. So that's kind of where we're gonna go, is kind of look at the difference between the two and what the Bible says and how we can, as Christians, can actually go and be great um, his way rather than um, the way the world goes. Um, because when I think about greatness, um, I think of people who've done cool things, right? Like amazing things. Like that's how we think of greatness, right? Like for me, sports is a big deal. Like LeBron James, the greatest basketball player ever. There's no debate. There's no debate, right? Like it's fine. Like So like he's great. We get it. Um, for those of you who don't get sports references. Um, you could be someone like great war heroes like Winston Churchill or like artists like Picasso or the great church heroes, you know, Billy Graham, you know, Alex Rettman, you know, people like that that are just, they're great. Like there's no question about it. Um, but what do these people have in common, right? They've done great things. Like that's without question. They are great in their own um, fields and their own professions. Like they've done incredible things. And there's a reason that they're well known, right? Um, but I think a question to ask is, are they truly, truly great? Is greatness just simply defined by great accomplishments, or is there something else that really makes someone genuinely, truly great? I think to answer that question, we need to go back and see how the disciples got it wrong. Um, and we, it's not too hard to see, but I mean, just first, they're just arguing about who is greatest, right? Like, I can just envision, like, Peter, James, and John, like, look at the rest, just like, you know, Jesus asked us to see the transfiguration, but you guys weren't there, so, like, that puts us ahead of you. And then Peter's like, yeah, but I knew Jesus was the Messiah, so, like, I'm greater than you, James and John. And then, you know, someone else is like, but I cast out, like, 15 demons last week. Like, what have you been doing? Like, there's this weird, like, contentious arguing who's the greatest, and it's kind of funny. Um, but the reality is, like, all they're doing is just, it's just pride in comparison. Like, that's what's going on there. Like, it's not a healthy debate about greatness. Um, and Jesus rebukes them. So clearly, like, these accomplishments and accolades and, like, great acts aren't, aren't really what Jesus is after when he's talking about greatness. And then next, we see that they're actually more preoccupied with, like, stopping someone from getting healed than celebrating that someone's out doing, like, kingdom work. Like, they're like, we tried to stop him. Um, and I think, honestly, what's going on inside of them was this kind of this feeling of like, well, if I'm great, then you can't be great too. Like, maybe a little insecure. Um, maybe if you're special, then I'm not as special as I thought I was kind of th feeling, you know what I mean? But Jesus rebuked that as well. So I think being important and being in this place of significance, um, that's not greatness either. And then lastly, this one's obvious, but like, you know, calling down fire to burn an entire village just isn't, isn't Jesus's approach to greatness. But I think what was going on is they were kind of bothered that they weren't, there's a lot of contentions with Samaritans and like, there's a lot of like history there, um, but they didn't get their approval. Like they wanted to be respected and they weren't. Um, but Jesus said, no, like don't, that's not how we do things. So being honored and being seen as important 
clearly not the path to greatness either. So what's the common thread, I think, for like all of these things is just it's insecurity and pride. Like that's what's operating within the disciples here. And I think that's driving them to try to be great um, in their own eyes. They're either trying to prove it to themselves through comparison and competition, or they're trying to get um, validation from other people and when they don't receive that, like it causes this response in them that we see. Um, so I think that's where this is coming from because if you're insecure, you're always going to need external validation all the time. Like that's just where you live for. You need it constantly. And if you're prideful, it's really the same thing. You still need external validation to make you live up to this high value and vision of yourself that you have. Um, so I think that's what's going on. And a life full of those two things, like the fruit of it's just a self-focused life. It's constantly asking the question, how can the world serve me and my needs? And it's constantly asking, how can I use my power, my influence, my abilities to serve me for my own gain? And this is what we see in the disciples. And I think if we're honest, um, I know I can see myself in these stories, and I think we can too. Um, and maybe we're not like wanting to burn down villages, but I think if we think about it, like there's so many things in life that we use to kind of bolster ourselves up. Like how often are we mentally just comparing ourselves to other people? How often are we like doing things from this place of trying to make myself feel like I have value and I'm great and I'm special? And like the list is endless, like it's limitless, right? Like it's clothes, it's a house, it's a job, it's money, it's ministry. Um, all these things can be ways that we kind of gravitate to grab and like, oh, I can be great at this, I can be great at this, I can be great at this, or I can have this thing that makes me feel good about myself, whatever it is. Um, for me, I know thinking back like throughout my life, there's always been something, right? That's like in every season of life. Like in college, like I was like the nerdy guy who was like obsessed with getting like the best grades. And there was always like that one girl in the class who I could never beat. Because um, they would like post the grades on the wall. She'd always check and be like, Sarah, dang. And then you keep going. But like if I was better than my friends, I was like, well, at least I'm smarter than you guys. So like I can feel good about myself. Like, like that's a form of greatness, right? Like that's what I was doing and I was comparing myself and like bolstering myself up. Um, and now like past that, like it's new stuff. There's new temptations. It's like a career, it's a house, it's being a parent, it's ministry. Like there's always in every season, there's always something that we're trying to be great at in our own eyes. Um, and where does this come from? And I think this is an important question to answer because I think if we can find the problem, we can find the solution. Um, so we got to go back to the very, very beginning of, of the Bible here to, um, to understand. So I think if you guys want to open your Bibles to Genesis 3. But before we read that, I do want to make a quick point. And I said this earlier, that our desire to be great and to be good at things and to be excellent is good. It's God-given, like that is from him. We see this in Genesis 1, I'm just gonna read it, 28. It says, God blessed them, being blessed by God, that's, that's a form of greatness. And he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill and subdue the earth. There's a mission there, there's purpose, there's a reason for being here. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Rule, like that's a hierarchical language. Like we are called to be great. So there's nothing wrong with this desire in and of itself when it's submitted um, to Jesus. Um, so don't take me wrong here. Excellence is in our DNA. Like that is, that is part of who we are, 100%. But the fall twisted this, I think, and we see this a lot in the world. But in Genesis uh, chapter three, this is kind of the, the story of the fall, if you will. So I'm gonna go ahead and read it. It's I think there's a slide for it. You can follow it along. So we're gonna be in Genesis three, um, 
verse one, and this is kind of the story of where I think greatness got twisted. So uh, verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, this is important, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of them and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So, I mean, we can see right away, like in the garden, man already had a good desire to be great. If they didn't have that desire, Satan would not have used this tactic that he used um, to deceive them. Satan promised him, like, you're gonna be like God, like knowing good from evil. That's a trait of God, that's a form of greatness. Gaining this wisdom is like a next step in being greatness, right? Eve didn't respond like, no, I'm, I'm good. Like, I don't really want wisdom. Like, I'm pretty content. Like, I don't wanna be any greater than I am. No, she was like, hey, you're right. Like, I can advance myself. This is like pre-fall. Like, she was like known that she's like, yeah, I need to like keep moving. So there's this desire there to be great. She had this natural inclination, like I wanna pursue more. Um, but she was deceived because we can't be great apart from God. Um, so what, what happened here? Well, they, did, they took greatness into their own hands. See, they thought they could be wise and they thought they could be great without God by kind of bypassing him and becoming more like him by being wise in their own eyes and gaining this knowledge of good and evil that was promised. But... Um, there was a chain reaction that I think was set in place here that is led to how we now define greatness today. And a couple things I wanna draw your attention to in the scripture. It says that their eyes were opened, but we're open to what? To discern good from evil. And there's debate out there about what that truly means. Um, but I think it does mean that there was this new wisdom and new understanding around good and evil that was gained. I think that's easy to see. But there is an issue with that because who's the only truly good being in the universe, like what is, what's the origin of goodness? It's God, right? This, Jesus even tells us this. He says in uh, Luke 18, he says, a certain ruler asked him, hey, good teacher, like what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So if God is the only real good being in the universe, only source of goodness, who is the only one qualified to define good and conversely bad? It's God, right? So, the only, person who, like, the only person who really understands something has that ability. Like, I'm not gonna go ask my doctor, like, how does my car work? Like, he's not gonna know the answer, right? That's not, who, that's not who I'm gonna go to. I'm gonna ask him about health stuff. In the same way, man cannot properly define good and evil on their own. We're not qualified. Only God is because only he is true goodness. But after the fall, we decided that we're gonna become our own authority on what's good and what's bad, Right? You can probably already see the problem. Um, but see, before the fall, we didn't question what was good and what was bad. We didn't even ask, right? Man was naked and unashamed. Like we were just living, hearing from God. Like God called us good in the garden, right? He, he made man and woman good. We had identity. He gave us our mission statement we read earlier. We had purpose, we have value. We didn't look internally for any of that stuff. It was purely given by God the whole time. But the issue is, 
Now, because Adam and Eve wanted to be wise and define it for themselves, they now had to come up with their own sense of belonging and value. Like they had to do it. They had to show themselves they were good because they were no longer looking to God to get that from them, right? And But since the fall is putting separation between us and God, who is the actual only source of goodness, inevitably, when they look inside themselves, they're gonna come up short, right? They've lost true goodness. It's not, it's not with them anymore. Yeah. They felt the shame that comes from our inadequacies apart from God. Like they felt the weight of that. And what's kind of ironic is even in their own eyes, their nakedness was bad. God never condemned that, right? Like it wasn't like after the fall, they made fig leaves and it was like, God's like, oh, you guys are right. I should have put clothes on you. Sorry. Like you look so much better. No, like he never said that, right? Like it, was ne- it wasn't even, it wasn't sinful. Like it's just kind of an odd thing to notice that like they were so unable to define good and bad. Like they just started condemning themselves. They're like bad, 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 bad. Because they, they, they had no goodness left. God wasn't, wasn't, that relationship had been severed. And I think it's precisely because we lost connection to letting God define us that we now need to be great in our own eyes to make up for it. I think that's where this comes from. And I think that's where the root of unbiblical greatness in the disciples was, was found. It was because like pride and insecurity, right? They're gonna manifest where there's lack, where there's emptiness. Like that's what it's gonna show up to kind of fill in the gap. And with God's, without God's voice, that that's what happens. And I think now our motivation to do these great and amazing things in our lives, they're actually just like fig leaves that we're fastening over ourselves, right? This is a really good quote from John Eldridge. Um, He says, most of what you encounter when you meet a man is a facade, an elaborate fig leaf, a brilliant disguise. We're doing our best now to maintain these amazing, these beautiful, important lives because we're trying to convince ourselves that we're good. We're just putting on these fig leaves, right? It can drive us to do impressive things. Like we can go out and be great. But the motivation there is ultimately, it's self-seeking. It's an internal lack. That's where it's coming from. And this is worldly greatness. I think it's accomplishments done out of a self-seeking motive, looking to impress both ourselves and others. And just so it's not me talking, I have two really good quotes I think help paint this picture. One's John Piper, and then one's C.S. Lewis. This is him kind of explaining what's happened to greatness today. It says, uh, greatness, it has been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be known as great. It's a big difference there. It has been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be greater than someone else. And then C.S. Lewis, same vein, says very similar things. I think this is from mere Christianity. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being richer or cleverer or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else was equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. This was the sin of the disciples. They didn't really want to be great. They wanted to be known as great and they wanted to be greater than the next person. That was what they were after. And this is what caused the fighting between themselves. This is what caused them to try to burn down a village and to stop people from getting healed because that was being threatened. Their own sense of greatness was threatened. So they had to stop it, right? And I think this is the desire that drives, I mean, just look in society. It's not hard to see this at play. Like it's everywhere. Like this is like chronically what's wrong with the world right now is people just trying to like fill in this lack that they have inside because they don't know they're good. Um, And I think in order to not fall into this trap ourselves, we got to understand how Jesus is actually defining greatness. And we need to know 
what greatness looks like. Because he's, like I said, he wants us to be great, but we need to do it his way. So what is biblical greatness then? And I think it's the opposite of worldly greatness, right? If worldly greatness is a self-focused life, then biblical greatness is the opposite. It's a life focused on others. Um, and Jesus gives us the answer right in this story. Um, back in Luke 9, 46, I'll just read it. He says, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. So what is Jesus's path to greatness? Welcome little children. That's it. There should be no lack of children's volunteers after today. Amen? No. What, what he's really trying to say is if you want to be great, be willing to serve anyone and do it in a way that is not about being seen. It's not about validation. It's just about helping others. It's just about serving the Lord for the sake of serving. Like that's, that is greatness, right? Today, like we glorify people who do kids ministry or like serve kids. Like it's kind of like a celebrated thing. Um, And for some people, like that can actually be a source of like, that does make me feel good about myself. But back then, like kids were the lowest like members of society. Like serving kids was not cool. Like no one's praising you. Like there's no promotion. It's not seen. It's not glorified. Like you're not getting any like personal gain out of serving kids back then. So that's the message Jesus is conveying. Like, there are people out there that you can serve, and it will not benefit you at all, benefit you in any way. That's greatness. Go do that. And this is so different than the message we get in culture today. Like, we're told that greatness is build the most impressive life, do the most amazing things, and get celebrated for it. Make sure people say good job. Like, that's greatness, right? Like, it needs to be seen. That's, that's like Instagram's business model, right? Like, totally. But Jesus has a very different approach, right? And this is, uh, should be a slide for this, in Matthew 23, verse 5 to 11. This is Jesus telling us, kind of contrasting the same, uh, the same issue. He's contrasting worldly, and he's contrasting uh, biblical greatness. Everything, talking about the Pharisees, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their, I can't say this word, phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servants. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." What is Jesus getting at? Let go of titles. You don't need to be called rabbi. Like, don't need, don't, you don't need people to see you as great. You don't need the accolades. You don't need the affirmation of men. That's not, that's not greatness. Like, you just need to serve. That's all it is. That's an exhausting way to live, right? Like, that is a life of anxiety and striving, like trying to keep your image up for yourself and for others to see. Greatness really only comes when we are serving for the sake of serving him and serving others. That's it. And if I'm honest, I don't walk around with that definition of greatness all the time. Like, uh, full, full disclosure here, like, I'm not, like, the, the poster child for this. Um, I still think of it as, like, what greatness would be, what would people look at my life and say, oh, he's great. Like, that's what I think of greatness. And I think it's tempting, honestly, because if I do something that's great, like, then I can feel good about myself. Like, I did that. Like, that's me. Like, there's, I have value. Like, I did something great. And I will 
I give this caveat that there is a place for excellence and there is a place for being great and doing things well in this place of serving where God's called you to. Like if you don't want to put in the work to become the person that's God called you to, like that's actually a form of selfishness itself and laziness. But at the same time, a servant heart takes zero skill. Like you don't have to be good at anything to serve. Like that's not a prerequisite. Like people don't have to look at it and be like, wow, they did such a good job. That's not the, that's not the point. The point is doing it for the sake of doing it for others. It's not so much a specific act as it is like a mindset. In my day job, like I work in healthcare. So like I could go to a third world country and like help perform these like life-saving surgeries and like it would be amazing and like people would be like, wow, that's incredible. Like you're such an amazing person. Or I could go to work tomorrow and go to my regular job, doing what I always do, and like, no one's gonna see it, no one's gonna say thank you, like I'm just doing my job. But if I do both of those things with a servant heart, because I'm doing what I feel like God's asking me to do, and I'm loving that person in front of me, neither act is greater in God's eyes. They're both great. They're both serving. So it's not about, it's not about the numbers or the metrics, it's not how much, or honestly even how well, to an extent. It's why, it's why you're doing it. And the why has to be, it's ultimately about him. Um, Matthew 25, 40, this is like the most haunting scripture. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we are serving, that's why. Because we're doing it for him. It's for the cross. It's for Jesus. Yeah. This all might sound idealistic though, right? Like, go serve. Like, go love. Like, thanks. Like, that's... Super helpful, right? Um, but God did not leave us like powerless to do this, right? He didn't just say, okay, like go serve, like good luck. No, he gave us the gospel. He gave us the solution. He gave us the ability to do this. Um, and I'm stealing Tim Keller's language here, totally. He, this, is his, this is how he frames how we get to this place of being able to serve completely selflessly. He says, get out of the courtroom. Get out of the courtroom. And this is what I mean by that. Because this, like, I think being able to serve is, like, 100% dependent on this. Like, this is how you do it. Like I said already, ever since the fall, when our eyes were opened and we now, like, our own judges of good and evil, we almost, like, we became our own judge. Like, we sit on, a, we sit on, the, in the, on the judge seat and we look at our lives, and every day we're judging ourselves. Are we good? Are we bad? Are we good? Are we bad? This is why we're constantly asking the question, like, did I say the right thing? Do I look okay? Am I funny or smart enough? Like, we're, it's like we're presenting evidence to ourselves, like, good, bad? Is it my sinful? Am I not? Like, that's, that's what's happening. Like, we're literally just our own judges. Um, and it's exhausting. We're just making, all day long, we're making, we're making these judgments about ourselves. But Paul took a very different approach. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 5, we see this. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. That's very interesting. We'll talk about that. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What has Paul done here? He's left the courtroom. He's gone. He's not even there anymore. He's no longer on trial. Like he is not in the judge seat. He is not judging anything about himself. He's not gathering evidence every day about if he's good or bad. First off, he just doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. And not in like a bad way, but like in a, 
in a way where he's not letting people's opinions define him. Like, it doesn't hold much weight. He's, like, free of the fear of man. Like, that's amazing. Like, it's, he, I don't care what you say. Like, I'm not here be, to be on trial for you. But second, I think, at least for me, even more hard sometimes, he's not judging himself. He is not looking at his own performance, his own ability to, like, gather data to, like, see, like, mm, like am, I, am I measuring up today? And I think the most shocking thing to me, he said he doesn't rely on his clear conscience to tell him if he's innocent. He refuses to make good, bad judgments even when he feels like he's doing a morally good job. Think about that. Even if he feels like I am living out of sin, like he's not using that to be like, hey, God, like we're good or I'm good. Like this is the man who is probably like, after Jesus had one of the highest standards, like a very holy man, did not use any of that to make him, he didn't feel good about himself because he was living that way. That wasn't, that wasn't something he thought about. That's really, that's really impressive. Um, but even equally so, he had reason to think poorly of himself. Like he had Christians murdered, like Paul in another place in scripture, he called himself the worst of sinners. He calls himself that. So there's a lot of opportunity for his conscience to not feel clean. But once again, he's not judging himself. He's not using that as evidence. He's like, I, I, re- I refuse and uh, Tim Keller summarizes basically like what Paul's trying to say in like really plain language, and I think it's just super helpful. He says, this will be Paul speaking, I don't care what you think, but I don't care what I think. I have a very low opinion of your opinion of me, but I have a very low opinion of my opinion of me. It's brilliant, right? Paul has reversed the role that Adam and Eve took on, Right? He's become like a pre-fall man in a way. He's like back in the garden. He's taken away the responsibility of judging himself and he's given it back to God. He's like, you know what's right and wrong. I'm gonna trust you. He might still be able to judge. He still could, but he's like, I'm, I'm free. Like I'm not on trial anymore, right? Right? He has completely put his trust in what God says about him. And when he does this, he gets the answer to the question that all of us are asking every day. Am I good? Am I good enough? Is that true about me? But he got it on the cross, guys. Like, he got it on the cross. Romans 8, 1. He wrote this. Therefore, there was no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation's a legal term, right? It's like a trial term. He got his verdict. Like, God gave him his verdict in the courtroom. He's like, you're not condemned. So he left. He doesn't have to go back. Like, he's good. We're good. We have value. We're okay. And it's at that place of the cross. That's where we get the answer. And this is the key to greatness because this is the key to service. We cannot serve selflessly until we are stopped trying to make fig leaves out of our performances, right? Otherwise, we can never do things out of genuine love. It's always out of fear. It's always out of trying to make up for the lack that we feel. That's, we can't serve. We can do the things, but we're not doing it from this true place of love. Like, why does Paul say that, like, if I'm going to prophesy or give all I have to the poor, but I'm not loving, it's pointless, That's why. You can do the things. You can serve. But if you're not doing it from the right why, it's not the same thing. That's not greatness. That's not biblical greatness. That's worldly greatness. Yeah. Colossians 3, 23, 24 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And that's the call to serve others and to serve Jesus and not need to be seen by others. It, that, that's what he's asking for us today. Um, so I'm about done, but as we close, um, God has really funny timing because he's essentially forced me to learn this in the last like 
couple of months. Um, I am currently in the busiest season of my life, hands down. Um, literally in the span of like three weeks, had a baby, bought a house and moved into it, started like a whole new job and career, like became an elder, like all at once. And it was really funny, like I think the day before, like Alex like called me to tell me I was being an elder. I was like sitting in prayer and the Lord was like, I just want you to know, like, there's a lot of changes coming. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I, I had no idea. He was, like, warning me, like, good luck, man. Um, so what's funny, though, is, like, full disclosure, like, there, I am realizing there are places in my heart where, like, my ability to accomplish things and be productive was still, like, kind of feeding that insecurity and pride a little bit. Like, I was making myself feel great about myself because I had time. I didn't have a kid yet. And then I had a baby, and all of that has been replaced with caring for her. All of my time that I once had to do things I liked is gone. And like, there are probably some of you out there that are like 3 a.m., like rocking your baby to sleep. Like you're like, you feel good about it. Like you're like, oh, this is, I'm in my, my element. I don't feel that way. Like just, like I, there's no personal glory for me in this. Like it is purely like humble going low serving my wife and my daughter. So God's like, all right. You have a choice. Um, you can serve your daughter and your wife, or you can try to hold on to your old definition of greatness that you had, or you can get my definition of greatness, which is rocking your daughter to sleep at 3 a.m., and you'll be greater than when you were upstairs doing whatever you were doing for fun that you thought was cool, right? Like, that's the difference. And it's not, doesn't look cool, guys. Like, no one's, like, out there, like, patting me on the back. But that's the point. Um, and this is, this is, I think, what Jesus was talking about when he says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Or, let the dead bury their own dead, you, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Or, no one, puts, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. See, we have to decide, and I have to decide every day, are we going to serve in the kingdom of God? Or are we going to look back and try to be great on our own way? Like, that's, that's what he's saying. Like, you have to die to that. You can't do both. There's always going to be things in our life that's going to distract us from serving. There's always going to be a reason. There's always going to be something that's going to come up that we can, ooh, but if I pursue that, like, I'll, I'll be that person or I'll have that thing. We have to just kill our egos and kill our pride um, and take up this life of service. Because the church, the, the world needs a serving church. Like, this is so attractive to see people that are just completely free from the fear of man, completely free from judging themselves, that have do nothing for image, do nothing for self-promotion. That's incredible. That's what we need. And I think this is why um, this is why we need the Holy Spirit, because God has called each of us to uniquely serve in specific areas. Some of it's like given, like me being a father, like that's okay. I don't have to ask him. Like that's obvious. But there are callings on each of our lives, right? This is what Alex was talking about last week. Like, we need a vision. Like, we need to know where are you calling me to serve so that I can go and be great how you've asked me to be great. So, why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to close here. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.